The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Do you or somebody you know hoard? You aren't alone. Hoarding affects millions of people throughout the world. You can do something about it and regain personal control. Welcome to Take Back Your Life When Your Things Are Taking Over with host Elaine Birchall. Reduce and relieve yourself from the shame and blame clutter causes in your life. You can do it and we'll show you how. Now here's your host, Elaine Birchall. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Take Back Your Life When Your Things Are Taking Over. Coming to you every Wednesday from 10 until 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 until 2 p.m., Eastern Time on Voice America's Variety Channel. Whether you're calling from Japan, the Philippines, Malaysia, Australia, India, Ghana, Germany, many places in the UK, Brazil, US and Canada. Those were all of the hits I had this week as a result of this radio show. So there are many, many people looking for the information we're going to present today. I'm Elaine Birchall, your host, and I'm here today with Dr. Gary Petronik, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, who's been kind enough to return for part two of Devotion or Disorder Too Many Animals? Has it become animal hoarding yet? Dr. Petronik and I want to help you decide better options for the animals in your care, better than to take personal and financial responsibility for more of them than you can manage comfortably, and then end up in trouble with the authorities accused of of hoarding them. Part one of Devotion or Disorder that Dr. Petronik and I did received an extraordinary number of calls and emails. As I mentioned before, they all came from near and far and all wanted to remain anonymous. Today's show is meant to take us beyond that, beyond how many animals is too many, and how do you know if what you're living with is animal hoarding? Today, we want to offer you, everyone in our listening audience who's feeling overwhelmed, yet also feeling solely and entirely responsible for many animals in their care, whether those animals are pets, uh, their own pets, or animals that have been relinquished or abandoned by others. Before Dr. Petronik joins us, I want to review some mental health aspects associated with animal hoarding. Now, I recognize that the following descriptions are very clinical in nature, and they may not seem to be sympathetic to the individuals who are honestly caught in a far more complex dilemma than any theory or model can handle, a theory or model around animal hoarding. So basically, there are five psychiatric mental health models of animal hoarding. One is focal delusional model. 
Now, in this model, individuals' beliefs are completely inconsistent with reality. The average person looking at the situation, the concrete actual situation, would in no way form the same beliefs about the, the severity of the situation for the animals and often for the individual themselves. They also insist that the animals are in good condition, despite concrete evidence to the contrary. And they've developed suspicion leading to paranoia regarding any offers of help. So they're isolated and they're alone with this overwhelming situation that is getting increasingly uh, out of control and deteriorating. They also believe that they have special abilities to relate with animals, but the evidence is not there that that is actually factual. Otherwise, other than these uh, descriptions that I've offered, the person can appear to be entirely normal. The next model is the addiction model. These individuals are preoccupied just obsessed with their drug of choice and their drug of choice is their addiction to animals. They focus on the animals to the point of their own self-neglect. And of course, the more self-neglected an individual is and becomes when they're not aware and they don't have insight, the less they can be available for so many animals and aware of the breed needs and the medical needs and the emotional needs of the animals. They're unable to control their impulses to acquire. It's an obsession and they're, they have an addiction, a positive addiction addiction to rescuing. The next model is called the attachment model. It's a little different. These individuals are likely to have experienced early deprivation and or abuse as children. They lack close adult human relationships. The animals are their only stable relationship as an adult. They prefer their animals all animals, to people, even if they do have people in their life. Their life is hallmarked by chaos, and the chaos prevents them being able to be appropriately available for the animal's needs, even as the animal conditions deteriorate. And their desire for animals is to satisfy their own unmet need for unconditional love and acceptance. Now, as humans, we all have needs for unconditional love and acceptance. It's one of the things that makes us mentally and emotionally healthy and keeps us mentally and emotionally healthy. But the degree of need, the profound need that these individuals with an attachment model of animal hoarding has is very, very different from the average person's need. And research done by Dr. Petronik in 2001 and Dr. Aluka in 2002 illustrated that research indicates that this type of animal hoarder may have grown up in chaotic homes with inconsistent parenting, where animals were the only source of consistent emotional contact. The next model is the obsessive-compulsive model. 
In this situation, individuals have an overwhelming belief that they must be responsible for preventing all harm and providing all care to as many animals as they possibly can. And of course, there's no lack of irresponsible uh, pet owners who relinquish their animals or abandon their animals. So it's not like the supply of animals isn't there, you know, in desperate need. These individuals take responsibility right from the outcome for others who are irresponsible uh, pet owners. They um, legitimize their actions by claiming to be a shelter. Now, in many jurisdictions, there is no accreditation, there is no legitimization of what constitutes a shelter or a haven or an impound, really. And so anyone in many, many areas can call themselves a shelter and really not meet the criteria for what is necessary to shelter animals. They may also hoard inanimate items. In fact, they often do. The next model, the last psychiatric model, is called the zoophilia model. And in this situation, uh, the individual keeps animals as objects of sexual attraction. And the animals are actually objects of sexual gratification. Now, fortunately, this is believed not proven, but believed to be a very low uh, prevalence rate. There is one other um, type of animal hoarding, and I call it the sixth uh, type, and that is brokering animals for profit. So this is usually described as puppy and kitten mills or individuals who recklessly breed their own dogs or their own cats with no thought for even minimal standards of breeding practices, of sound breeding practices. And they do it in order to yield the maximum number of animal units for commerce. Unfortunately, this also speaks to an inadequate, quite often inadequate standard of uh, confirmation, health checks, um, health of the uh, both the, the uh, male and the female in the breeding pair, and leads and is often associated with inhuman treatment of animals as well, because the real goal here is the yield of animals that they can turn out because it represents a profit for them. Now, because the issue of animal hoarding is very complex, in fact, it's one of the most complex forms of, of hoarding at, entirely, we are really fortunate to have our expert guest, Dr. Gary Petronik, who is a renowned veterinarian and epidemiologist, willing to return to be with us for part two and to help you and I out there figure out where the lines might be for those who see the necessity to relinquish animals they can't manage comfortably, but know how how to figure out the difference between a good quality shelter or other housing option and one that they shouldn't trust with the care and custody of what have become defenseless animals. 
In order to get the most of this valuable information and make it available for all of our listeners from over 14 countries this week, I'm going to ask you to email into me any questions you have to Elaine, E-L-A-I-N-E dot B-I-R-C-H-A-L-L at hoarding.c. And my trusty assistant, Donna, will give the questions to me, and Dr. Petronik and I will attempt to answer them. So just to remind you also about Dr. Petronik's qualifications, so you'll know that you can have confidence in the quality of what you're going to hear today, I want to remind you that Dr. Petronik currently works as an independent consultant, an adjunct professor at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. He's a past shelter director, so he's going to speak with great um, authority uh, about the quality of a good shelter and what you should look for. He's the vice president for animal welfare at the Animal Rescue League of Boston and former director of the Tufts Center for Animal Animals and Public Policy. He also founded, was a, a co-founder of the Hoarding of Animals Research Consortium called HARC, H-A-R-C. They did fabulous work. It was a multidisciplinary group of investigators who conducted much of the initial research concerning animal hoarding when animal hoarding was a little known phenomena. The work of Hark was instrumental in the mention of animal hoarding in the new hoarding disorder uh, manual called the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Health Disorders Version 5, issued in May 2013. He has published over 50 peer-reviewed papers and textbook chapters, many of which deal with animal welfare and shelter issues. And he's one of the co-authors and editors of the Guidelines for Standards of Care in Animal Shelters put forth under the auspices of the Association of Shelter Veterinarians and is one of three co-editors for the new book, Animal Maltreatment. Forensic Mental Health Issues and Evaluations, published by Oxford University Press in October 2015. Because of his deep experience, both at a research and hands-on level, no one knows more about animal hoarding than Dr. Petronik. So I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you, Dr. Petronik, and to thank you sincerely for coming back for today's show. Hi, Elaine. It's good to be back again. I'm glad to, glad to be chatting with you and your audience. Ah, thank you. So I want to start off with the question of overpopulation. Is there a reason other than overpopulation to have shelters and impound facilities, would you say? Well, I, I'm not quite sure how one is defining overpopulation. Um, you know, mm-hmm. some people used to define overpopulation as the excess breeding of, of puppies and kittens beyond the you know, beyond the number of homes that were there to support them. And that's obviously quite different all around the country, where in, in many parts of the country, on the coast at least now, we have shelters that are importing animals from other parts of the U.S. because they they really don't have enough, uh, at least as they perceive it, enough adoptable animals in their shelters. The shelters serve a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, functions in a community besides, um, you know, just taking in quote-unquote excess animals. I mean, for, for very legitimate reasons, you know, people are often 
put in a position in life where they're no longer to keep a beloved pet and they need assistance with rehoming it. Um, shelters also, not always, but in, in many cases, also work as a place where stray animals can be safely kept until they can be reunited with their owners or adopted. And I don't really think of that, you know, those sorts of things as, quote-unquote, overpopulation. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, shelters also play a, a very big role in most communities in helping animals that are the victims of abuse or neglect. Right. That's absolutely true here as well. What role and effectiveness does public education have, do you think, in reducing the number of animals born that need to be relinquished and potentially euthanized if homes can't be found for them? I don't know that anyone can actually answer that with any kind of data, but certainly, um, you know, as we've seen in the Northeast here where I'm from and, and as well as some other parts of the country, education does, you know, awareness and education and action seem to do seem to go together. And, um, you know, but the other piece of that that's very important is also support because it's one thing to educate someone about the importance of spay neutering, but if they're a person who's disadvantaged and uh, they're finding that just beyond their means, either, you know, for short term or a longer term, then having resources available to assist those people is also equally important because most people do want to do the right thing, but if it's, they're in a point in life where that's very hard um, for whatever reason, whether it's for money or your access to veterinary care, transport, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, tangible assistance is also important. Absolutely. What are the most successful proven options for affordable spay-neuter access? Well, that's a little bit outside the discussion of hoarding, I suppose. Um, let me think. What could we talk it could, about? It, well, could, it could be there preventative, are, there are though. There in, in many parts of the country, so I can't say that I'm an expert on which are, which are the best, et cetera, but there are programs in many and they're different in every, you know, in every area where either veterinary organizations or humane organizations or private foundations, et cetera, do put forth programs to help people who, for whatever reason, need assistance with either affording or accessing spay-neuter services. Okay. Um, we're going to go to break in just a, a minute or in about a minute. So um, can we start to talk about what some of those methods might be for enabling people to access um, or what would be helpful um, that is presents a, a gap? And then we can finish talking about it after the break. I, I think one of the things to think about here, too, is that I'm, I'm not sure that very that that a large portion of um, people who get into trouble with animal hoarding situations are in that position because they can't afford or, or access spay or neuter. I mean, that clearly can happen in some cases, but in my experience, most of the time, um, that's not the issue at all. Um, okay. they're, you know, we, for whatever reason, can, they're acquiring animals, and um, maybe they're letting them breed or maybe they're not, but, but in, in some cases, they're just... They just acquire adult animals, and it's not a question of breeding uh, and litters at all. Okay. Can we talk more about that after the break? Oh, sure, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, folks, we're going to go to a break now, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about what other options there might be around spay-neuter or uh, preventing animal hoarding. Take care. See you after the break.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If the financial markets interest you, if you want to potentially earn a higher return, if you're not satisfied with your investment returns, or if you're only making 1% on your investments sitting in the bank, do you see the stock market hitting record highs but feel you have no one to trust? Voice America's own Jordan Kimmel, the host of Magnet Investing for over seven years, is applying his strategies of magnet investing and is managing individual accounts. Jordan Kimmel has joined InvestView, the Red Bank, New Jersey investment education and asset management firm. And his team can help you. Contact Jordan and the team at InvestView at 732-380-7271 or by email at jkimmel at investview.com. If you would like a complimentary portfolio review or to speak to a representative, call us. Past performance of investments are not indicative of future results. Investing is inherently risky. All recommendations should be researched by the investor. Call InvestView at 732-380-7271. That's 732 732- 807271 If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com This is Take Back Your Life when your things are taking over. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you prefer, send an email to elaine.birchall at hoarding.ca. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Petronik and I were talking about where that line is between more animals than a person can take care of and um, and animal hoarding. Um, and so um, I'm hoping that we can, without actually labeling everyone who has more animals, whether it's, you know, whatever number, um, then they can comfortably manage or they discover um, that life circumstances have changed and they have more animals than they can take care of. And animal hoarding, you know, it's, can become a continuum. People who psychologically maybe are not uh, predisposed to hoard animals can end up with an overabundance of animals if life circumstances change. And so, you know, the net result can be somewhere on that continuum of inability to care for um, and not enough spots in shelters. Um, So can we talk a little bit about that continuum? Because every person who um, I have worked with over the past 14 years who has hoarded animals, and it's maybe, you know, 60 cases really, um, 60 situations, um, did not believe that they hoarded animals and yet 
uh, in some cases, they were successfully charged with it, and the animals were apprehended. And even people who, you know, might have had 311 animals in their house or, you know, 217 animals in a double-wide trailer, the, the experience of not being able to care for the animals um, was on a continuum. I also have somebody I'm working with right now who has um, 11 cats, um, and um, those 11 cats have created um, physical conditions, you know, with high levels of ammonia, with spraying in the house, that the house is actually not uh, not really habitable for this elderly woman. And so rather than make animal hoarding about numbers, can we talk about when people find that they're not managing um, their own self-care or uh, the environment um, or the animal's needs um, rather than label people. And that way people can self-identify or not. And the information that we'll talk about might be more useful to them. Sure. Well, I would, you know, I think probably we're, we probably uh, are, are describing somewhat different parts of the elephant as it were, um, because as, as a therapist, you're seeing probably people that are um, more in, you know, either they've sought care on their own or they've at least been able to be, um, encouraged to seek some sort of care and help. And that is probably going to reflect people who have a, a relatively higher degree of insight. Whereas the most, unfortunately, most of the people that I've seen have been in a law enforcement context where really insight is, is very, very poor, if not completely absent. And so right. those are folks that are, you know, for whatever reason, don't recognize at all that they've got too many animals. They don't recognize at all that they're unable to provide proper care. And uh, really, that there's anything wrong with their own self-care, and and so there would be the the problem is, and as you rightly pointed out, this is a very heterogeneous behavior or condition, and we've got to be able to uh, help and intervene with people on on all spectrums, and certainly the it sounds like at least some of the folks that you've been able to help and work with are people who perhaps have a bit more higher insight, and those are folks that are more than willing to go with the with a with a program of assistance, you know, through whoever is offering it, whether it's veterinary medicine or humane groups or some kind of a rescue group or other nonprofit advocacy. Mm-hmm. The ones that are tougher are the ones that just sort of dig in their heels and say, no, I don't see a problem. And that's really sad on all counts because they don't see how the problem has affected their own lives. And obviously, if they're not feeling bad about how they're living and, and what's happening to them, it's pretty hard to see that there's something wrong with the animals. Or it's very hard to convince them that there's something wrong with the animals and their that's living cert- conditions. Yeah, that's certainly true uh, to some extent. Often, I, I really can't think of one person I've worked with who voluntarily called me on their own. Generally, it's... Um, they're under extreme pressure, either from um, the SBCA um, or um, bylaw uh, officials or the fire department sometimes or family who are saying, would you at least go and talk to her, okay, so that you can have something to think about, something to consider outside of just your own view of it. And so they don't 
I don't think I've ever had someone with animal who really did um, hoard animals um, who you could really describe um, successfully um, had proactively insight. Um, it's it's a really complex, really complex disorder. Um, so, yeah, I do get that we probably are talking about different parts of the elephant because certainly I also know of other situations that are exactly what you described, Dr. Petronic. Um, so what can we offer um, people in the way of options or information about ch- even considering doing it differently um, with well, respect to I mean, the and I think that is absolutely the goal of the, of the whole conversation here. And I think yeah. that, that there's good news there, which, which, which is important. You know, anyone who's listening and who thinks that they might be in trouble is already far, far ahead of the game. You know, they, they at least are, they're, they're entertaining the possibility in their minds that maybe things aren't as good as they could be for them and the animals. And that's really a, an open door. Maybe it's not wide open, but at least there's a foot in the door. And in my experience um, with many of the humane societies I've worked with around the country, and even with some private veterinary practitioners, if someone expresses um, a concern, they are more than willing to begin a quiet, confidential, long-term, you know, conversation to think, okay, how can we start to make things a little bit better? How can we understand your concerns, what you're worried about? And how can we help you or find fish the other resources to help you, um, you know, whatever they are. Because in, in, in some of these cases, it's not just a question of resources for the animals. It's a question of other kinds of assistance that people need. And there was actually a wonderful article last Sunday or the Sunday before in the Boston Globe about a, a young man who, who's now in his 40s. He's an ultramarathoner, and he made it his mission about 10 or 20 years ago um, he worked for a housing authority to start trying to understand and help people who were hoarding objects. And he really developed quite a bit of expertise that he talks about and how to knit together all the other kinds, help these people knit together all the other kinds of social services that are often important um, in getting them over the hump to address, you know, the, the other parts of the of the hoarding problem. And I think those, maybe those systems aren't quite as formal in animal welfare but they're there in, in many communities, and what you typically need to do is just, if you're, and I understand, absolutely understand why people are cautious and scared and worried. They don't want to be on the front page of the paper. They don't want their animals taken from them. But assuming you're approaching this at a relatively early stage where there isn't an urgency, almost all shelters slash law enforcement authorities would much rather start with a plan going forward to gradually improve conditions than they would to come in with some kind of a warrant and, you know, just turn the whole thing upside down. That's not really in anybody's best interest. That's really a last resort when people absolutely dig in their heels and refuse to do anything to improve conditions. And and it's documented that the animal's conditions really fulfill animal cruelty. And in many hoarding cases, when people start to get worried and there's a little concern, we're not at that stage yet. So there really is time to intervene proactively. Oh, that's that's a really interesting uh, point of view. Um, the is there any connection on the continuum of care? Um, you know, the people you're talking about, um, who we've met, you and I both have met, who are highly resistant and highly suspicious of any form of help, and really kind of, 
you know, hold hold the bastion firm on on what they see as maintaining it as fact. Um, and people who um, might just feel that they want to take responsibility for um, animals that are theirs and aren't theirs. We, we have a question here from Linda from Hamilton asking, what can you do if a neighbor keeps feeding feral cats? Um, Linda feels that, that her neighborhood in Hamilton is now filled, uh, like there's many, many, many more than there were before, of sick and deformed animals because I guess they're interbreeding. Um, and, you know, that the community seems to have a very different, op- like a divided opinion. Some think she's a saint and some think that she's a hoarder. And I'm wondering, is the, is it inconsistent, do you think, to um, the same person who would feed feral cats or act as a shelter, an informal shelter, are they not the, the um, in a state of mind where they would consider spaying and neutering um, to um, manage this population that they are taking responsibility for? Are they not the same kind of people, do you find, Dr. Petronic? That is the... $65,000 question, Lane, um, because okay. none of the studies had really done anything longitudinal where they've looked at people and followed them over a long period of time. Everything we have is really cross-sectional. So we just encounter that person at whatever stage of the process they're in. We really don't have a good sense of where they started, and we don't know where they would have gone had we not intervened. So it, it uh-huh. is a really important question that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, in relation to the, to the one situation you described, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Um, more and more communities, at least in the U.S., and I would imagine it's caught on in Canada too, are starting to realize that it is possible to manage cats in the community setting. And so rather than bringing these, all these cats that are out there running loose and bringing them into a shelter and essentially possibly euthanizing them, that they can be managed uh, adequately in many communities but there's, there's some caveats to that, and typically those are, you know, those are done through community-wide programs where they're very aggressive, spay neuter support services for feral cats. I mean, they will literally run these feral cats spay clinics like a machine and do, uh, you know, 75, 80, 100 cats in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are mm-hmm. very well-organized networks of trappers to keep them, you know, to catch any new cats or kittens that come in. And so from what I'm hearing out there in the field and, and even in the published literature, it is absolutely possible to do this in a way that is, that is okay for everybody, where the cats are not a nuisance to the neighborhood because they're not reproducing randomly, they're vaccinated, they're fed, they're in a pretty good state of health, um, and there is support to make sure that things don't get out of hand. But that's a very different situation, perhaps, for, than somebody who is very well-meaning at trying to do that but it doesn't mm-hmm. have the kind of support one needs to, to both keep the problem under control and ensure that the cats that are there are actually healthy. Absolutely. I was mentioning about this woman I'm working with um, who has 11 cats in her home. And, um, I mean, she is just a lovely person who is very well-meaning. Um, and she even takes feral cats in and ha- ha- has them given vaccinations, um, an annual uh, vet check, has them paid out of her own funds to have them spayed and neutered. And even she's been in in her community for a very, very long time and and she's well 
well liked and well respected. So even you know some of her neighbors who you know have aged and they're living on pensions and um, they run into problems with their cat. She will she's not a millionaire or anything, but she will use her own funds to take. Um, animals into the vet and you know she has a obviously a very positive relationship with her veterinarian and so I just really want to get away from vilifying people oh, who are she sounds like you know the kind of person we'd all like to have living nearby to help the animals that need help I, I would never Absolutely. for a second attempt to attach anything pejorative to those kinds of activities no. there's no. so many people here right in, in my neighborhood that you know that could fit that description so I, I think that's admirable yeah, and I think that, you know, just in this show today, we're using the term animal hoarding, we're using the term animal hoarder. It's just a simple way to describe a complex situation in no way do I want to, and I, you know, I'm so appreciative of you being my guest today because I know you don't believe it either in vilifying the individual who may in fact be trying to do something very positive for pets that other people aren't taking care of. Um so, do you see municipal animal control limits um, feeding or reducing the problem of insufficient forever homes when when they set a limit, you know, that kind of abstract limit for animals? We've always felt that that was not likely to be particularly productive and that there are probably more positive ways to go about it. The main reason is that people who are absolutely determined to engage in, in, in a pathological level of behavior with the, with the number of animals are not going to, you know, they're driven by forces we don't fully understand, but their compulsion is so powerful, the last thing they're going to pay any attention to is whether there's a limit law. They're going to have, you know, the house might be boarded up or the, or the windows might be boarded up, newspaper over, you know, people not invited in, et cetera. They will do what they need to do to maintain, you know, privacy and security, but they're not going to be deterred um, by a limit law. Um, yeah. Now, there, are, there have been some communities out there that have just said, I think Colorado has something called the Pet um, Animal Facilities Act or something like that, where um, if you have a certain number of animals, that just opens you up to uh, a routine inspection periodically. You have to register and inspect, you know, for people that are very large numbers of animals. And that's not designed to prohibit. That's just designed to ensure that if in- inspectors come by, that they can just check and make sure that whatever the number you have, you're operating in a way that meets their needs as well as keeps, you know, keeps the community safe. And, and to I me, that's a much more proactive, positive way of, of achieving the goal of making sure you have a way to get in somewhere before there's a, a, a big problem that's completely out of hand without creating these artificial limits that really I, I don't think are productive at all and probably limit the, you know, adversely affect people who genuinely want to, want to help and are able to help animals. That's, that's very, very true. We're going to take a short break now. How about we talk a little more about that uh, when we come back after the break, Dr. Petronic? Great. Okay. Okay, everyone, we're going to go to a break, and we'll see you right after. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events 
to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. This is Take Back Your Life when your things are taking over. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you prefer, send an email to elaine.birchall at hoarding.ca. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. We have Dr. Petronik, who's talking to us about where the line is, this this really complex line of devotion, starting to get beyond the person's ability to manage, and that word that has such a bad connotation, and we really want to get away from vilifying a person who's labeled as an animal hoarder. Um, so, Dr. Petronik, in case, and there are bound to be, uh, people out in our listening audience who are just starting maybe to think about how close to their limit they are and what what they're going to do, what are, what are options that they could actually, in good conscience, caring about these animals, do as an option to solve the fact they're, they're not managing that well. So, what are the characteristics of good options or good shelters? Well, the, the best document out there is one, as you mentioned, I helped develop, um, and it has now been adopted um, by in full, really, by the Canadian Federation of Humane Societies. I would imagine it's on their website. Um, the, the parent document in the U.S. is called Guidelines for Standards of Care in Animal Shelters, and it is published by the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, um, and uh, that's called ASV, and it's freely available online, uh, both in the U.S. and Canada. And that document lays out very, very um, sort of clear goals, at least. It's not terribly prescriptive. It's designed really to fit any sort of an environment, home-based environment or, or institutional, where animals are cared for in a population setting. And it, it talks very much about best practices um, and how to how to ensure and, and assess whether the animal's needs are being met on a daily basis. Uh, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. That's really interesting. So what would the characteristics be for people who maybe aren't computer literate or they don't have a computer or access to one? Can we kind of give them what that would look like? Well, it's, uh, there's a lot of chapters to review there. But very, okay. very briefly, I mean, there's, 
there's many aspects. I mean, there's aspects of sort of basic disease control, which is going to be, and quarantine procedures, which is going to be very different when you're dealing with a population of animals as opposed to just having a single pet. And so it does get more complicated. And the more animals you have, the more complicated it gets. And that's where, again, seeking out some professional guidance is really, really important there. Um, There's also a lot about the welfare of the animals on a daily basis and looking at their behavioral needs to see if their behavioral needs are being met, how to judge their behavior in a cage, how to make sure they get out for certain kinds of enrichment, et et cetera, et cetera. Um, So those are probably the the biggest things that people would be, you know, would be learning about when they look at, when they look at that document. I see. So if, so then just, um, I mean, I had a look at that document before um, we started the show. So can we talk a little bit about what kind of policies, um, just simply, what kind of policies would you expect a good shelter to have from an informal one um, that can't really be trusted? And and we do have some of those. I've actually had a personal experience with one that turned out to be quite alarming. Um, But, you know, on the surface... They're usually, I mean, they're usually, you know, very clear policies that are written down and transparent and understood by everybody. Um, You know, starting with intake, you know, how does intake work? Where do animals go? How do you screen them for disease at intake? How do you get them vaccinated? At intake, how do you keep them, if necessary, segregated from other animals in the home or facility until you're sure that those animals are healthy and they can, in fact, be mixed? They talk about, you know, decisions about how to decide behaviorally which animals can be, you know, mixed with others and which animals perhaps need to be housed, in, you know, on their own or with, with just a single cage mate. Um, they talk about daily routines and how those daily routines for cleaning, for feeding, for sanitation, again, have to be clearly specified and understood, um, how there need to be routines for checking on the animals individually every day to making sure that they're eating, to making sure that they're not showing any signs of illness or behavioral problems. And then for shelters that are also doing adoption, then there's a lot of information there about how one manages that whole process. I realize that, that for many people, that's not going to be particularly important is these are animals that they're keeping. But, if, you know, in the case that that is part of the deal, then those are talked about in quite a bit of detail. Right. And so just, um, I, you know, I've probably had maybe 12 examples um, of people that I was working with who were deemed to be hoarding animals who would have agreed, who did agree to um, part with some of the animals. I'll use the example of the woman um, with 11 cats. She can identify, I mean, after we've worked together for a while, which animals she really feels she needs to protect and keep and which are younger and would adapt more easily and you know she would like to see have forever homes because she's an older lady um, and there's no guarantee you know cats can live a very long time particularly if they get the care they get with her um, so what kind of, of policies f- around relinquishing and see perceiving what kind of homes these animals you relinquish to a shelter, if you can do that, um, to, to increase the likelihood that they will end up in good homes. Like, you know, things, I, I think back to my experience where 
um, my antenna should have been a little sharper. I guess I just went in with a lot of experience, but maybe a little naivete. Um, and um, things like how to screen the adopters that um, you're you're handing this animal over um, in adoption to somebody who intends and will commit to a forever home. What kind of screening process is reasonable? Well, that, there's sort of two parts to that question. Um, and, and one of them is, you know, what, where, is, where is animal sheltering in general heading? And way back in the day, certainly when I first started it in sheltering, the, the sort of conventional wisdom, as it were, was that adopters were the problem and that, the, and that all of the sins of the people that relinquished animals on the shelter and then left um, were going to be visited then in retribution back on the well-meaning people that came in to adopt. So adoption was made extremely difficult, and everybody believed that all kinds of rigorous screening needed to be done. Well, fast forward 30, 20, 30 years later, and we're seeing the exact opposite now. We're Shelters are beginning to realize that they're not psychologists in waiting. They, you know, they can't possibly read people's minds. That people are in fact coming to them with the best of intentions, and that they're there to sort of have a conversation, but not to start this idea of that there are all these different, um, you know, criteria and things that are going to separate a good home necessarily from a bad home. So the the general gist is to open things up a lot more and not overestimate our own ability to predict what a good home is going to be or isn't going to be. The other part of that question in terms of working, you know, hand-on-hand with someone who, who has come forward and said, you know, I, I've got too many or I, or I, I get your point. I think, you know, there may be too many here and they're very worried about what will happen. I have seen cases where it's been very, very effective to engage the person in some part of the dialogue about the rehoming of those animals and at least to make a commitment to them that the animals will, in fact, be rehomed and not euthanized. And often that's the big stickling point because they feel that as soon as the animals are gone, they're going to lose all information about them and even to the extent that the animals might be euthanized, which, you know, they would never consent to. So you can, you know, develop some way that doesn't become too burdensome on the shelter then but also doesn't just make the, you know, force the person who's given up the animals to just give them up without any further knowledge about what's happened, you're much likelier to get um, cooperation in that rehoming process. And maybe you start with just an animal or two. You know, you don't expect to do it with 40 at once, but you do it with one or two. You send them the pictures of the people with the animals in the new home if the new home is amenable to that. And you, you you build the trust to show that, yes, this really can work out okay, you know, that if, if you're not actually placing these animals at risk by giving them to us, you know, we'll do right by them. Right. So I, I was in their study, uh, the, the research I was doing in preparation for it today, I came across a very old study um, back to 1999 um, that caused me to Uh, create this question for you. The study said that um, in the U.S. in 1999, the study stated that if there were um, the um, requirements for uh, animal prohibition in rental units was lifted um, as far back as 1999, that 6.5 million companion animals could be adopted throughout the U.S., in apartments um, that would then permit tenants to have pets uh, with conditions, uh, obviously, that supported the needs of the landlord. Um, Is that 
a, a realistic is is that a valid um, option for more for standardizing the availability of adoptees and homes for animals? Well, certainly, you know, I, I can't attest to the number one way or the other, but certainly I think everyone in the sheltering movement is well aware that rental prohibitions and sometimes some very, some very, you know, some very draconian ones do absolutely, you know, both, you know, force people to give up animals as well as prevent them from adopting animals. And so finding ways to you know, bring landlords, you know, more in line with, you know, responsible pet owners would, in my mind, absolutely help more animals, you know, have homes and would limit the, eliminate the, uh, you know, the relinquishment. I mean, when the, when the economy crashed here, you know, a number of years ago, it was really terrible to see that people coming to our own shelter and, you know, they had lived with these animals forever. And, you know, we all say, well, I'd never give up my animal. But here were people that because of the crash of the economy and loss of the job, they were a paycheck away from losing their home and had to move. And, you know, they truly didn't have any other options. And it was absolutely crushing for them because they couldn't Absolutely. find a place that would rent and take a pet. I, I, yes, I, you know, we have that here as well in certain areas where um, there's been a severe economic downturn um, and, and it is heartrending. I, I used to work with the vet at um, our local humane society my whole way through high school. And certainly, you know, you see people who really, like, crushing is a really good adjective for it. Um have you ever heard of state, and so I guess it would transfer to provincial or federally mandated departments being tasked successfully with administering animal control programs and legislating the cost and access or co-pays for animal care, like, you know, vaccinations, sterilization? So the, the, the best example is one that's very close to home for you. At least it's on your side of the border. Uh, and okay. that was um, in Calgary. There, He's retired now, but the the director there, Bill Bruce, um, was the director for many, many years, and we actually had him speaking here in the States a number of times um, to different audiences about their very forward-thinking and successful and proactive animal control program up there. So uh, I'd say talk to Bill. He'd be a great guest on your show, and he, he did a really good job up there. Oh, that would be, I will. I'll look him up. How come? How common is mobile? We have two minutes left in the show. How common is mobile access for sterilization, um, and you know, sort of that pre-surgery uh, vet check, um, and and is that an an affordable, a realistically affordable option to promote good health care? Sure, absolutely. And again, these are I, I can't give you numbers, but they're I, I do believe they're common around the U.S. I mean, you go you go and visit shelters, and it seems like many shelters have mobile units. And certainly the larger ones, if you go to, you know, veterinary conferences and shelter conferences, you'll all see these, you know, these big units displayed and things. And if there wasn't, uh, if there wasn't a market for them, um, you know, all these manufacturers would not be investing all this money in, in fine tuning them and, and making them so that they can, in fact, be very efficient mobile healthcare slash operating facilities. Are you aware, uh, because in the reading that I did, and we only have a minute on this, um, the um, funding for paying municipally for spay neuter, um, the money's ran out like in like the first week of every quarter. Is there a a brief answer to 
to but that? But what we did here in Massachusetts, which has made a, a big difference, I think, is we, I don't know if you have it in Canada, but we have a license plate program where there's a particular license plate that says spay, neuter, I love animals, or I'm an animal lover or something like that. Um, and you pay a little extra every year when you get your license, when you get your car registration, but then you get this, you know, sort of like a vanity plate that, you know, shows your support. And that money brings in here in Massachusetts, I think about a quarter of a million a year. Wow. What a wonderful note to end on. Pretty good chunk of change for stay neuter. Right. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for coming back, Dr. Petronic. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, and I know everybody in the listening audience does too, because we've got lots of people listening in today, I'll tell you. So thanks again, and thank You're you, welcome. everybody, for coming to the show, and uh, we will see you next week. Uh, take care, and be good to yourself, and be good to your animals. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please join Elaine Birchall for another edition of Take Back Your Life when your things are taking over next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll help you declutter your home and your life again next week.